as always, church, it's good to be with you. If you have a Bible, go and open up to Ephesians chapter 5. To Ephesians chapter 5. And we're continuing to teach through the book of Ephesians like we've been doing for a long time now. And we're spending our second week, today we're spending our second week on the topic of marriage. Topic of marriage. Last week we looked at the covenant of marriage. That God made marriage to be this unbreakable covenant between husband and wife to display the unbreakable covenant between Jesus and his people forever. That was last week. We looked at marriage as covenant. But this week, this week we're going to look at the other unique aspect of marriage, and it's the roles of husband and wife. It's the roles of husband and wife. And the text we're looking at, we looked at last week and this week, Paul spends the majority of his time unpacking for us and instructing us on how husbands and wives are to relate to one another because... The roles of husband and wife in marriage are designed to point us to something larger again. They're designed to point us to the way Jesus and his bride, the church, relate to one another. That of all the things in all creation God could make to show us how Jesus and his people relate to one another, he gives us marriage. The marriage covenant shows us how unbreakable the relationship is between Jesus and his people. And the roles of husband and wife show us, reveal to us, display to us how Jesus and his church relate to one another. So let's look at the text together. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. This is the word of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. The text is teaching us that husbands and wives have distinct roles that complement each other in marriage. That husbands and wives have these distinct roles that complement each other in the marriage covenant. So what the text just told us, we put it really succinctly for you, God gave the position of authority and headship to the husband And God gave the role of submission to the wife. That's what the text just said. That's not like in the Greek or something. It's really clear. It's really clear it's in the text. Now, I don't know how that sentence makes you feel. When I say God gave authority and headship to the the husband, gave submission to the wife, I don't know how that makes you feel. Some of you may be okay. I'm cool with that. I know that. Some of you may think, and that feels off to me. Some of you may think, that feels a little regressive. That feels a little oppressive to women. And let me say, if that's where you are, I totally understand where you're coming from. I totally understand where you're coming from. When I first came to the stone, I'd just gotten married, and we heard this teaching about these distinct roles in marriage. And I can tell you, my first reaction was, no way. Like, my first thought was, there's no way that's true. 
I mean, it went against everything I knew about marriage, everything I've been taught about how husbands and wives should relate to each other. I mean, it went against everything that I felt to be normal. But what did the text say? I remember hearing people teach us and thinking, I really hate this. Why? I don't know. Just don't like it. I just don't like it. But I had to deal with it because it's in the Bible. The same Bible that told me all these great things of God's mercy and his grace and his love for me is the same Bible that told me that what honors God most is when marriages have these distinct roles. I had to deal with what the text said, even if it made me feel uncomfortable, which is a great reminder for us. This text is a great reminder for you and for me that eventually God is going to challenge you. Eventually, Jesus is going to command you, not call you, not request of you, not ask you, but command you to think certain things, to believe certain things, to do certain things that go completely contrary to everything you've ever been taught, everything you've known, everything you believed prior to this statement. Eventually, Jesus is going to rub you the wrong way. I don't know what your perception of Jesus is, but eventually he's going to rub you the wrong way. When you read the Gospels... Eventually, Jesus frustrates everybody. Like eventually, even the most devout disciples think, do you really think that, Jesus? Like for real? You've, we have to believe that? Jesus says, yes. He tells people, he offends them by saying, you have to love me more than your own kids, more than your spouse, more than your parents. He offends people by saying, hey, you need to be generous to the poor. No matter what their track record with money has been, you need to be generous. You need to kill sin no matter what. You need to go and die for your enemies. He tells the people these things and everyone eventually says, I'm having a really hard time with this. And Jesus does not say, oh really, maybe I should change my mind. He says, I know. But this is the word of God and this is what I'm commanding you to do. Eventually, Jesus is going to offend you. And can I tell you, if you're never irked, never challenged by the scriptures, can I tell you, you're either not reading them or not taking the claim seriously. If you're never challenged, never irked by the scriptures, you're either not reading it or you're not taking it seriously. And this marriage text is one of those. It probably will challenge a lot of us in how we understand the marriage relationship. It'll probably challenge the way you've always thought about marriage, but you have to know God gave these roles. He's clear in the word. And he gave these roles, again, why? To display something larger than just the marriage relationship. Marriage is not about a husband and a wife primarily. It's ultimately and primarily about God. The roles are not given based on your ability, based on your value, based on pragmatism. The roles are given to husbands and the roles are given to wives to display the glorious picture of Christ and his people. That husbands, you're supposed to show the world what Jesus' loving leadership looks like of his people. People should look at the way you treat your wife and say, that's how Jesus treats his church. He loves her, he dies for her, he serves her. That wives, people should look at you and say, oh, that's how the church responds in submission to his authority. That's how the church respects him and trusts him all the time. See, marriage is ultimately about God, not about us. It's about his glory and our good in it. And so I want to spend a lot of time today showing you what this practically looks like in a marriage. 
I think the roles in particular, it gets kind of messy and confusing when you think about how do I actually do this? I'm going to spend a lot of time on that. But before I do, I want to make sure you and I are on the same page as to what we're actually displaying. Like, I don't want to assume that you totally get or are amazed by this incredible relationship that you and I get to display if you're married. If you're married. And so I want to show you this first truth from the text. I want you to see how Jesus uses authority. So husbands, listen up. I want you to see how Jesus uses his authority to love the church. Look at verse 23. Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit everything to their husbands. Now, before we get into the role, look at what it says about Jesus. There is no question if Jesus has authority over the church, right? No question. He's the head of the church. He's the savior of the church. He's the leader of the church. He has all authority over us. He's been given all authority over all things, but he has a special relational authority over his people. With that total authority, he could do whatever he wants. With that total authority, Jesus could do whatever he wants with us. We are totally at his disposal. And what God tells us is that with all that authority, what does Jesus use it to do? What does he use it to do? He uses it to love you, to serve you. And I want you to look at each of the texts in verse 25 through 32. In each phrase, I want you to see how Jesus loves you. And these are things that maybe you've heard before. Yeah, yeah, Jesus loves me. No, no, if you're not wowed by it, you don't get it. If you see the gospel and it doesn't produce awe in you and, and marveling in you, then you don't get it. Let's look at this text together and see how Jesus uses his authority to love us. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. All that authority, what does he do? He loves the church. What defines his leadership, husbands? Love. Not lording his will over his people, but having a genuine affection, a genuine delight, a disposition that says, I'll do good to you no matter what, no matter what it costs me. I'm going to love you. The next line, and he gave himself up for her. He gave himself up for her. He doesn't use his authority to look strong and impressive. He uses his authority to what? To look weak and humiliate himself on the cross. All that authority, what does he use it for our benefit? He's humiliated on the cross. He's shamed. He's mocked. He's ridiculed. He's crushed on the cross. He does not sit in heaven and say, I love you. Hope you're okay. He says, I love you, and I'm going to demonstrate it by going to the cross for you, by dying for you. See, he, he was not put on the cross by an obligation. It wasn't as if Jesus was like, okay, God, I'll love them. He says, no, I'm going to give myself up for them. I want to. I want to love them. I was not put on the cross by obligation. I was put on the cross by my love for you. That's how he uses his authority. The next line that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That word sanctify means to set apart. He set you, set me apart as his most prized possession in all of creation. Think about all that he's made, all the incredible galaxies he's made, all the beautiful th things he's made in, on this planet, and yet, what is his most prized possession in all of creation? You. You. 
He says, what do you want more than anything, Jesus? Out of all of the universe, what do you want? I want my church. I want them. I want to wash them with the water of the word. I want to instruct them. I want to adorn them with honor. I want to love these people. Look at the next line. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Do you realize his death was so strong and so much love for you that now when you stand before God, you don't have spot, wrinkle, or blemish? Think about that. Think about your sin this last week. Think about all the small ways you had pride, all the small ways you were perverse, all the large ways you sinned against God, and yet what does he say? When you stand before the Almighty, what do you look like? Without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. You don't stand before him with any of your sin. You stand before him with all of Christ's righteousness. You are stained every day by your sin, and yet Jesus washes you so clean, you stand before God, he doesn't see any of it. He uses his authority not to make his bride cower before him, but he uses his authority to lift her up so she can rejoice in him. He doesn't make you cower. He doesn't remind you, hey, remember I died for you? No, he frees you up so you can rejoice in him and love him back. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, church, because we are members of his body. Last thing, his authority is not harsh, it's not domineering. It's tender. He cares for us. He nourishes us. He cherishes you. Do you see Jesus this way? Is he, in, is he trying to intimidate you all the time, or is he trying to draw you in? He wants to cherish and take care of his people. Jesus uses his authority, all authority over you, for what purpose? To serve, to love. There is no one else, there's no one else who would ever use that kind of authority for that kind of love. You have to know that. There's no one else in all of creation who would ever use that kind of authority over a people to show that kind of love. You you know this in your life. Typically, in our experience, the more authority you have over somebody the less likely you are to love them. The more authority you have over somebody, the less likely you are to love them. You you, you may bestow good gifts to them, you may provide for them or bless them, but to love them like this, to die for them, it's not likely. If you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm saying. You know exactly what I'm saying. Um, Children are one of the greatest gifts God could give you. They really are. My, My little girl Ellerby and little boy Henry, they are... Some of the greatest gifts God's ever given me. They, are, they make me have love and joy and delight in ways I've never had before them. They're incredible. But they also have this in, incredible ability to produce a whole other level of rage. Of rage. I thought I was a sane, nice person, then I had kids and realized I will destroy them in an instant. It's so crazy to me. And what's interesting about kids, if you're a parent, you know that. You know that no one else can make you as angry as your kids can. Nobody. But what's interesting about your kids is that they're not doing evil things to you. Like, it's not as if your kids are more evil than your next-door neighbor or people in this church. But you respond to your children with way more negative emotions than you do anyone else. Your, your kids aren't doing anything more evil to you, yet if they do something that anyone else would do, you get way more angry at your kids than you would at that person. Like, for instance, Elle will, she does this thing where she'll mess with my glasses and it just, I lose it every time. I don't, I don't, know, how to, I don't know how to keep it together. I just lose it. I'm like, stop, dad's mad. Everyone get away, scatter. Like, that's kind of how I feel. 
And if you accidentally smudged my glasses, I would not go, scatter, get away from me. I wouldn't do that. I'd have much more patience and kindness. I wouldn't get mad at you. I'd go, oh, no big deal. You know, I'd fix it. But why do I get angry with my kids? You know this if you're a parent. You would never get angry at someone else for not eating their dinner. You, you wouldn't go, that's ridiculous. You wouldn't do it. You wouldn't get mad at someone for just moving around in their seat. Stop it. Stop. Stay still. You wouldn't do that. You would not yell at someone for asking the same question over and over and over again. All those things, if someone did them who wasn't your kid, you may, I mean, you may get annoyed, but you wouldn't yell. You wouldn't, you have way more negative emotion towards your kids than anyone else. Why is that? They're not more evil. They may feel that way. They're not more evil. Why is that? It's because of authority. You have a God-given authority over them more than you have over anyone else. And so what does authority do for people like you and like me? It makes us justify anger. It makes us justify frustration. Why? Because we see authority as now you're obligated to do what I say and serve me and listen to me. See, authority in our economy with our sinful hearts becomes the opportunity to lord it over people. But Jesus is the opposite. See, our authority, well, with the little authority that we have becomes justification for our lack of love. But Jesus has incredible superior character to us and goodness to us. So what, is, what does authority do for him? What does total authority do for him? It's an opportunity to love other people. It's an opportunity to die for his people because he is that good. This is what Jesus told his disciples. They're asking, hey, who has the most authority? Who's the greatest? And here's what Jesus says. But Jesus called to them, them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says most people with authority, what do they do? They lord it over people. Husbands, you have authority. If you don't know God, what you'll tend to do is lord it over your wife. What does Jesus say? Look at me. The son of man, the son of God came not to be served, but to serve. He didn't say, everyone, come serve me. He said, I'm going to serve you, and I'm even going to die for you as a ransom for your sin. Jesus has all his authority over you, and you know what he uses it for? To love you. That's the first part of the story. The second part is this. How does the church respond to his loving leadership? In submission. In submission. Look at verse 23 and 24 again. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. To be a part of the church is to submit to Christ. To be a part of the church is to submit to Christ. You cannot be a part of the church and not submit to him. He, he is the leader of the church. He's the head of the church. He should have the highest praise and value and respect and loyalty among us. He is what binds all the people in this room together. He's not just, we're not co-leaders with him. You're, you're not sharing the will with Jesus. No, he is head of the church, so much so that if we lost him, what would happen? We'd be lifeless and aimless. 
He leads us as a people and we gladly follow him. See, husbands and wives, that's the story you're displaying. Future husbands and wives in this room, that's the story you will display. Husbands, you are not in authority because you're better. Wives, you are not in submission because you're weaker. You are there because you're playing a part in displaying this story, displaying this relationship. So I want to get into all the the practical details of how this works out. Before I do, I want you to know, husbands and wives, that you fulfilling your role is you following Jesus. The primary reason you fulfill your role in marriage is because you're following Jesus. Okay, you don't fulfill your role so long as your spouse fulfills theirs. Well, I'll start leading when she starts following. No. No. Well, I'll start submitting once he gets more respectful. No. No, the text says for you to follow Christ is for you to fulfill this role. You don't base whether you fulfill the role on whether your spouse has been kind to you this week. You base it on what has Christ said to you. And Jesus has given us these roles. So let's work these things out in, in the practical nature of them. Let's start with husbands. Husbands. So husbands in here, future husbands in here, listen up. This is for you. Wives, take notes because he's, he's going to forget probably. Um, husbands, God has given you the weighty and sacred task of reflecting Jesus to the world. Of reflecting what Jesus how he treats his church to the world. Listen, you have, husbands, you have this authority no matter your gifting, no matter your personality, and no matter your desire for it. Some of you think, well, I don't want that position. Sorry. Jesus gave it to you. Some of you are thinking, that's right, I got the position. Calm down. Jesus gave it to you. You're not that great. (laughs) Hey, and and when I talk about leadership of your wife, can I just say something off the bat? Don't associate it with a certain personality type. Don't associate leadership of your wife with a certain personality type. Don't think, okay, i got to be some sort of alpha male now. No. No, it's not about personality. Every husband in this room, every future husband in this room is going to express your authority and your love for your wife in different ways. But can I tell you, husbands, here's the baseline of what it has to be. The baseline of what it means to love your wife and lead your wife are these two things. You initiate... You take responsibility. You initiate and you take responsibility. You initiate reconciliation after conflict. Even if she's 99.9% wrong, you initiate. You initiate conversations about how to manage your finances. You initiate going on a date. You initiate spiritual conversations. You initiate sexual intimacy. And on and on I could go. You initiate. You don't put that weight on your wife. She may do it from time to time, but it's not her primary, primary responsibility. It's yours, husbands. The reason you initiate, why? Because Jesus initiated with us. He does not wait and stand and go, all right, guys, once you're ready, I'm, I'm ready to go. He initiates every single time. That's why you do it. It doesn't stop at initiation. You initiate, and then you take responsibility. You take responsibility for the state of your marriage. If something is broken, if something is off, husbands, it's up to you to fix it and address it. It's not enough to initiate a hard conversation or initiate a conversation about anything and say, well, I tried. She won't listen. It's not an excuse. You take responsibility and you make sure it happens. Even if your wife is in sin, 
you come alongside her, you care for her, you encourage her, you teach her the word of God, you see her through to the end. You take responsibility. Now, there's one thing I need to say about that. I don't mean, what I don't mean is you somehow have to do this all by yourself. I don't mean that husbands initiate, take responsibility all by yourself. No, you need to invite your wife into this process. Husbands, your wives are more gifted than you in a lot of areas. A lot of you are like, they're way smarter than you, for sure. And you need to invite them into this process. You don't initiate because you have all the answers. You don't wait till you have all the answers. You need to go to your wife to find some of those answers. You, you may think, something's off in our marriage. You know, I, I don't know what it is. Something's broken. It's on you to initiate and say, hey, I don't know what's going on. But we need to talk about what feels off to me. You take responsibility not because you are gifted to do it. No, you take responsibility because that's what Christ did for us. He saw us in our sin. He did not say, well, they're messed up. I did all I could. And Jesus says, I'm going to take responsibility and ensure, I'm going to ensure they're taken care of. That's what you do for your wife. And so you do this in two areas. You initiate, take responsibility in two areas, husbands. Protection and provision. Protection and provision. You are the protector of your wife, both spiritually and physically. You're the protector of your wife, both, both spiritually and physically. Jesus protected us. Our sin was against us. The accusations of Satan were against us. The wrath of God himself was against us. And what does Jesus do? He comes in, he stands in the gap, he protects us. He dies so that we could flourish. So husbands, you need to protect your wife, both spiritually and physically. Here's a couple of examples of how you can do that. Husbands, you protect your wife spiritually by praying for her. Pray for her. Don't think about, don't analyze, don't just problem solve. Pray. There's nothing more powerful you could do for your wife than to ask God the Father to act on her behalf. Pray for your wife. You spiritually protect your wife by protecting her time. Husbands, you need to protect your wife's time and guard her from overcommitment by saying yes to everything, serving everywhere and wearing herself out, but also need to protect her from undercommitment and say, hey, it's time to get off the couch and serve somewhere, be on mission somewhere, care for somebody. That's your role. Husbands, especially with, if you have young children, it's on you to make sure that your wife has consistent time in the scriptures away from the kids. That may mean you sacrificing a hobby you love. Jesus died. So you may have to as well. Things are going to have to die for your wife to have that time in the word to protect her time. She has time with the Lord. The last thing you can do to protect her spiritually is to protect your wife from despair. Protect her from spiritual despair and apathy by encouraging her. Husband, your wife does not need you to come in and tell her all the places she's terrible at. Husbands, I would ask you, when's the last time you specifically encouraged your wife with where you see God working in her life? Like when's the last time you said, hey, can I just tell you, I see the spirit of God working you in this area. And by the way, be, be specific. Just saying like when someone goes, hey, great job, 10 things you're terrible at. You're like, didn't feel really genuine. Don't just be specific in your critique. Be specific in your encouragement. Say, hey, hon, I see the spirit of God. The way you responded to our neighbor the other day, how kind you were and compassionate, can I just tell you, that's evidence of the spirit of God in your life. Hey, the way you spoke truth to that friend of yours who was struggling, that really encouraged me, and it shows the spirit of God in your life. Encourage 
your wife of where God is at work. Because what her sin and what Satan wants to do to your wife is tell her she's worthless and tell her that God's not doing anything in or through her. Remind her that's not true. Remind her of where God is working. So you do that spiritually in all sorts of ways. And also, it should go without saying, but you should protect her physically. So if there's a weird noise, husbands, you go check. There's none of this, pretty sleepy, why don't you check it out? Like, none of that. None of that. Even if your wife is a black belt in karate, and there's a burglar coming in, husbands, you go tire him out before she takes him down. That's how this works. Here's a rule of thumb. If anybody's dying first, it's the husband. That's how this works. That's your, you're like, I didn't sign up for this. Sorry. You're reflecting Jesus. If anyone's going to die, it's going to be the husband. <laughs> you can walk away now. Um, so you protect her both spiritually and physically. You also need to provide for her spiritually and physically. That text says Jesus nourishes and cherishes us like his own body. Like his own body. He knows where the aches and pains are. He knows where, he, where we need medicine. Same way with your wife. You know how she's doing. Know how you can provide for her both spiritually and physically. There's a couple of examples of ways to do that. Provide for her spiritually by sharing what you're learning in the scriptures. By sharing what you're learning in the scriptures. Husbands, your wives are going to hear the Bible from a lot of different people. They're hearing the Bible right now taught by me, by our, our preachers. They're going to hear it in missional community. They're going to hear it in accountability groups. But they need to hear the Bible most from you, husbands. They need to hear the Bible most from you. Share where God is convicting you of sin in the scriptures. Share where you're, where you're seeing the greatness of God, the greatness of his glory in the scriptures. Don't just give your wife counsel from your mind. Give her counsel from the word of God. Spiritually provide for her. Provide for your wife an example of what following Jesus looks like. Model for your wife, husbands, what it looks like to repent of sin and trust Christ. Model for your wife what it looks like to serve and be generous. Model for your wife what it means to sacrifice and to evangelize. Your wife should say, I have a great picture of what it means to follow Jesus in my husband. He's not perfect. He sins, but I see him trying. I see him fighting for faith. I see him actively fighting his sin. You should be the primary picture she looks to to say, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Now, you could never do that, husbands, unless you're being fed yourself by the word of God. You can't lead anybody spiritually if you're not growing yourself. Along with spiritual provision, you need to, you need to provide physical provision. So financially, husbands, you are the, it's your primary responsibility to see that your, your wife, your family is provided for. Now, hear me clearly. That does not mean that wives can't work. That doesn't mean your wife can't make more money than you. If she does, jackpot, that's great. It's a great thing. But what it means is that, husbands, it's your primary responsibility to ensure that it's happening for your wife and your family. Even in seasons, if you're in school, even if there's seasons of disability where you can't work, you make sure she knows you're doing everything in your power to help her out, to help her out. Also, lastly, you need to provide physical affection for your wife. Husbands, you should flirt with your wife. You should be affectionate to your wife. You should hold hands with your wife. I'm not saying you got to talk in some kind of baby voice to her or anything weird like that. That's your thing. I'm sorry. It's just weird. Talk to her like, like she's an adult. Um, but be affectionate towards your wife. So husbands, initiate, take responsibility in the protection and provision of your wife. Now for the wives. For the wives. And future wives in this room. God has given you the sacred and weighty role of displaying to the world 
how the church trusts and respects and submits to Jesus. Now, I know this is, the, this is the part of the roles that gets kind of sticky and we have a difficult time with. And so I know for a lot of you, this may be very difficult to think about, okay, you're telling me I'm called to submit to my husband. Yes, but let me tell you, you have a great example of submission in Christ. Jesus himself submitted to God the Father. I mean, he, God the Son, this is part of the nature of the Trinity. God the Son submits to God the Father. But you see this most pointedly in the Garden of Gethsemane, When Jesus is praying, Father, is there any other way? Father says no. And Jesus says, okay, let's go. He he places himself under the authority of the Father and submits to him. See, often you and I equate submission to a sign of inferiority. As a sign of inferiority or weakness. But nothing could be further from the truth in God's economy. Jesus is equally and fully God, yet he submits to the Father even when he asks him, says, is there any other way? And the Father says no. See, for Jesus, his submission to the Father is not a sign of his inferiority or weakness. It's a sign of his love and trust in God. So wives, I would venture to say that God has given you the more difficult task, the more difficult role, because you're submitting to a man, to a husband, who's broken, who's weak, who's sinful, who's going to make poor decisions sometimes. And so as you struggle with that, as you attempt to obey God in this area of your life, remember Christ. Remember for Christ, submission is not a sign of your weakness, a sign of your inferiority. No, wives, your submission to your husband demonstrates your strength and your trust in God. The same way it does for Christ. And can I tell you, wives, your submission to your husband will not go unnoticed. Jesus submitted to the Father. What did the Father do to him? Exalted him to the highest place. Wives, as you submit to your husband, to that man who's trying his best to lead, know that God will honor it one day at the resurrection. Know that. So there's two important caveats I need to say to talk about submission. First, wives, you submit to your husband into holiness. Submit your husband into holiness. If your husband is telling you to do something that is explicitly and overtly against the word of God, you do not do that. You do not do that. If God has said explicitly and overtly that something is wrong, any authority that tells you to do that, you're not obligated to follow. Now, let me be clear. I don't mean if you just disagree with him. I don't mean you're like, well, I don't like that. I guess the word of God, I'm not doing it. That's not what I mean. What I mean is if he's leading you to do something that is explicitly said is a sin in the scriptures, you don't submit to him. Okay, that's the first caveat. Second caveat is this. Wives, you submit to your own husband, not men in general. Not men in general. See, all of us, men and women, have authorities over us. At this church, you have the elders over you, men and women. We have the government over us. But for wives, your husband alone has this place over you. You don't follow men in general. The the command is not, God did not say, women submit to men. It's not what it says. It says, wives submit to your own husband. He alone has that authority over you in that way. So this is really important. If you're here and you're not married and you're a woman, you're thinking about getting married one day, this is why it's so important you don't marry a chump. I'm serious. So important. If you want to know what a chump looks like, come talk to us after the service. I'll give you all the detail what to look out for, okay? 
Serious, like, as a, as a woman, when you get married to this man, you are saying, I want you to have this authority over me. It's a big deal. So that's why you don't want to just have any man who desires it to be your husband. It's a special place of authority that only he has. So, wives, your main responsibility and your submission to your husband is this. Empower him and encourage him to play out his role. Empower him and encourage him to initiate and take responsibility. You're not there to remind him of all the ways he's failed. You're you're not there to play Holy Spirit and remind him of all the ways he's failed. You're there to fan and to flame his leadership, to encourage him. You don't make him earn influence with you. You invite him into your life. Invite him into your life. Invite him into speaking into the decisions you're making. Give him that authority even if he hasn't earned it. And one really practical way that you can encourage your husband, and there's a lot of different ways, but one really practical way is by honoring him in public. By honoring him in public. There are a few things that will emasculate a husband more than when his wife is ripping on him in front of other people. And maybe you're like, no, we're different, we're sarcastic like that. Maybe. But I'm telling you, any husband over time, if his wife is constantly making fun of him in public, it's going to be hard for him to feel respected. It just is. It just is. And can I tell you, there is nothing like your wife bragging on you in public. Nothing puts wind into the sails of men's leadership like their wives bragging on them in public. Because you know she, it ain't true. You're like, that's kind of true, but I'll take it. <laughs> but it tells you, man, she respects me. She loves me. And it makes you want to lead. Following your husband doesn't mean, though, you passively don't say anything, that you passively submit. So it does not mean that you can't speak. Don't think that. It does not mean, no, I can't do anything spiritual. It's always the husband has to do it. Don't think that. If you have a concern with the decision he's making, say it. You need to express your heart authentically. Express your desires for where you want your marriage to be. Speak honestly and candidly with your husband. Push back against his, what he thinks. But like the church with Christ, do it in a respectful way, a kind way, and ultimately trust his decision. Ultimately say, here's how I'm feeling, here's where I am, here's what I think, but ultimately I'm going to trust your decision. That, it's not a passive submission, it's an active submission to your husband. And I know there are many wives in this room who want so desperately for your husband to lead. That's a fantastic thing. But I want to share with you a great quote that one of the wives of one of our elders uh, shared with me years ago. And this is the quote she said for, for wives who are in that place who are thinking, I want my husband to lead. And she said, everyone wants a spiritual leader till you actually get one. You're laughing because you know. Everyone, everyone wants a spiritual leader until you actually get one. So you're going to want a spiritual leader until your husband goes, okay, I'm starting leading our family. Hey, I really think we need to spend less here and give more money away to the nations. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah, I think we need to maybe spend less time at home, more time like with our neighbors or in this church serving somewhere. Hey, I, I know we don't pray often together, but I want to start praying more consistently. I know you don't want to tonight, but we need to pray. And in your worst moments, wives, you're going to think, I miss that old husband who was lazy and didn't do anything. Because all of a sudden he's challenging you and leading you. And can I tell you, if that begins to happen in your marriage, know it's a good thing. It's a really, really good thing. It's going to be hard at first, but long term, you're going to be so thankful that God's graced you with a husband who actually tries to lead, who actually tries to initiate and tries to take responsibility for your marriage. See, there is no 
other relationship in all of creation like marriage. Not one. Husbands and wives, you have the distinct honor and privilege of being a living, breathing example of Christ in the church. You're a living, breathing example of the most eternal relationship. Christ and his people. And can I tell you, all of us are going to fail to play our roles well. All of us are. Husbands and wives, you have plenty of repenting and confessing of sin to do. Husbands, you're going to try to do this and be too aggressive or too passive. Wives, you're going to be too aggressive or too passive. And we're going to have to confess of sin often. And all of us go back to Jesus often because he has plenty of grace for failing husbands and failing wives. If you're in here, husbands, and you're thinking, man, I, I would love to lead like that, but you don't know my sin. I don't. But Jesus does. And you don't make up for it. He makes up for it. So don't lead in order to make up for past sin. You can't. Lead because that's what Jesus called you to. Love because that's what Jesus called you to. That's how he treats you. Now you mimic it. Plenty of wives in here thinking, I would love to follow him that way. I just... I just can't bring myself to do it. I know. Christ knows what it's like to submit. Go to him for the grace that you need, the power that you need. Because it's going back to Jesus again and again and again and again. It's going to make you want to play your role well. Because you're going to want to see for yourself and you're going to want this city to see just how great our God is. And you're going to see that. I'm going to see that. The city is going to see that when? When we play our roles like this in marriage. We play our roles this way in marriage so that marriage could be what God made it to be. A place for the world to see how great his love is for his people. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful that Jesus fulfilled every role you've called us to. God, I'm so thankful that Jesus loved and uses authority to love in ways that we as husbands fail to all the time. Father, I'm thankful that Jesus submitted to you, submitted to human authorities in ways that wives struggle to all the time. I'm thankful that Jesus is the end of marriage. I'm thankful that he is the point of marriage. I'm thankful that he is the power of marriage. I'm thankful that everything and every one of these marriages are about him. Because God, if it were about us, it would grow old and stale and boring and lifeless. But God, it's not about us. It's about him. It's about the one who had all authority, yet he used it to love us. All authority, he used it to die for us. And God, I ask that you would make us a people who we are impressed again in awe again and marvel again at who Jesus is. That his love for us, his example for us, would begin to work in us a desire to say, Father, whatever role you give me to play, I'll do it. Whatever thing you have before me, I'll do it. Because God, you are the song that I sing. You are the joy of my life. And whatever you want from me, I will do because you are more satisfying. I would never choose this way, but it's the way where I get more of you. God, give me that kind of faith. Give us that kind of faith as a people. God, make us people who sing your praises at the top of our lungs, who serve one another in the most costly of ways.
God, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand together. Let's sing.